If you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Nahum, we'll be finishing up the book of Nahum this morning. We'll be looking at chapter 3, which is the last chapter in this book. And I'll conclude our talk, so consider our talk this morning to complete the text of the book of Nahum, as well as some review ideas that we have uh, in this passage. Next week, we're going to start the book of Galatians. Um, That's in the New Testament. And uh, we'll be going through the book of Galatians. We'll be there. If you do have your maps, um, and if you don't have one, I'll try to get you one. But if you have your maps, it might be helpful to bring it next week. I'm going to do a little bit of background so we know where Galatia is and what is going on in history at the particular time that the uh, letter to Galatians was written and so on and so forth. But I'm going to read um, uh, Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 by way of our text reading, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Speaking of Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, who has been in control of all the known world at this point, God prophesies and says this, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Let's pray. Father, you know my desire is always to be clear, And my desire is to be truthful. And my desire is to uh, honor you. And I pray as we look at this last chapter of Nahum that all these things would be true. And that we would see who you are more clearly and be changed more evidently as a result. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as a twist of fate, I want you all to turn to Romans chapter 10. (laughs) I fooled you, didn't I? We're going to look at three verses at Romans chapter 10 uh, before we start by way of introduction. And I believe it to be very germane. I want to read for us verses 3, I'm sorry, 9 through 10. uh, 9, 10, and 11. I'll get it right one of these days. 9, 10, and 11 of um, chapter 10 written by the Apostle Paul to a Gentile crowd trying to explain the things of the Lord from the Jewish mind to crazy people like us who don't understand what God was saying in the Old Testament most of the time. Paul says these words beginning verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two things. Belief, that is intellectual assent. 
Don't misunderstand me. That is, un, that is not unimportant. We not, must know what we believe, and we need to believe that the Lord Jesus is Lord and Savior, but we also have to have this conviction in our heart, and our heart is what motivates action and a response to the reality of what we believe. But if we believe in our mind and in our heart, we are saved. Verse 10 goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the question that I asked from these three verses, and I know this seems very Sunday school-like, is what am I saved from? Well, most of us in this room would have very good and appropriate and right church answers, and you would be correct. I'm not making light of any of that. I'm going to summarize it by saying that we are saved from the judgment of God because of our sin. Personally and corporately, we are sinners, and God has the right to judge that sin. And if we do not believe in what God calls us to believe, then we will be judged by God himself. If not, God's judgment passes upon his son if we put our faith and trust in him, and we are spared the shame of being separated from God for all eternity and doing an eternity of punishment because of his judgment for sin. It's easy to say that we're saved. It's not always easy to remember or to talk about what we are saved from. You see, the book of Nahum is somewhat of an oxymoron. And, and that is because the whole book is about judgment. Judgment for sin. And in particular, against one nation, and more particularly against the capital city of that nation. The nation is Assyria. The capital city is Nineveh. We know in 612 BC from actual human history that the city of Nineveh fell to the Babylonians, wiped off the face of the earth. The entire empire was wiped out, and there has not been an Assyrian empire since that period of history. And the Bible tells us it was because of God's judgment upon sin. But Nahum goes on and says the problem of sin is not just an Assyrian problem. And it's a problem that does not reside merely in Nineveh. That sin is something that God hates and he hates it on a universal basis. And that the problem of sin is something that affects and inflicts every human being on the face of the planet. And so consequently, every individual on the face of the planet has to deal with the judgment of God. That's one side of the book of Nahum. The other side of the book of Nahum, which is very ironic and the other part of the oxymoron, is that Nahum itself says that it's a book of comfort, which is very peculiar. Because I very seldom put the idea of judgment and comfort together. You see, Nam's name itself means comfort. And there are verses in this book 
unlike the ones that I just read where he calls the city of Nineveh a prostitute and that their shame is going to be seen among all the nations, there are verses that say they were written for comfort. And so the last thing I want to do today is say, how can judgment and comfort be paired together? You see, the whole of chapter 3 are what are called woes against this city, Nineveh. What God is going to do to Nineveh, uh, the fact that they're going to come under his judgment. They have conquered the Syrian empire, the uh, empire of Damascus, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. They've gone down and conquered Egypt. They run the entire world, and they were a ruthless people. I've held back on giving you details, but it was very commonplace. And as a matter of fact, the Assyrians celebrated this by putting it on their panels that, that when entire tribes and entire nations were taken captive, they would cut off the prisoners' ears and eyes and nose, uh, that they would skin them alive. They would put live men on stakes and watch them slide down. And, and not only did they do this to inspire terror in their enemies, they actually enjoyed it and, and celebrated it. I mean, they were so proud of it that they put it in the annals of their kings. And, and so when we read the book of Nahum and we are trying to balance the words comfort with judgment, the only way that we can do it, I think is if you're part of the southern kingdom of Israel to whom this book was written and God says, I'm going to judge the Assyrians, you say, ah, there's a little comfort in that. There's, there's a little comfort in that. Even though my family's been wiped out and everything that I have has been taken away from me, God is going to judge that people and that, that somehow helps me sleep better at night. And, and there is that element in Nahum. There is the element where God is strictly speaking of judging the sins of a particular people, but, but then there seems to be this problem of sin on a universal level. And anybody who's remotely intuitive says, well, I'm comforted by them being punished, but where am I left? And, and so I don't sleep quite as well as I would like to because I know that I have a problem with sin. And if God has a universal hatred towards sin and his hatred towards sin leads to judgment of me, there's a problem nagging out there that needs to be dealt with. And so I'm not quite as comforted as I would like to be. And, and so it's a bit of a challenge to try to put these ideas of comfort and, and, and judgment together. Um, and, and so th there we go. Let me read verse 11. Um, of chapter three. No, I'm sorry. Let me let me just take us back to Nam now. Everybody, get back to Nam and and look at that. And this is what's coming to the capital city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is kind of an interesting place. And I'm 
I need to remind us of what's going on in Nineveh because a hundred years before this book was written, the city of Nineveh was the most godly place on the face of the planet. And I'm not kidding you. It was the most godly place on the face of the planet. A prophet named Jonah was sent by God to this city and he preached in their streets and everyone from the king of Nineveh to the donkeys repented and came to faith in the one true God of Israel. Can you believe that? And in a generation and a half, they are performing the kind of crimes that I described earlier and much worse, but I don't want to give you, you know, details that go beyond propriety. But, but in a generation and a half, you, you had the most godly city on the planet turns to what we would call the most evil. But, but see, here's the problem. If sin and judgment are a universal reality, what it does is it keeps us and the Israelites who first heard this, or it should keep us, from thinking about an us and a them. You see what I mean? Because I know the Assyrians are bad guys, and I know that Nineveh exemplifies the Assyrians, and they're really, really bad, and so God bring your judgment upon them. But if I'm remotely honest, I have to say there's a judgment problem that I need to deal with as well because some level of sin has touched my life in addition to the Assyrians. And, and Nahum as a book demands that we don't just see an us and a them because every one of us here can very easily say, I know somebody that deserves judgment. I know a group of people, a political party, a nation, an individual who deserves the judgment of God. And the second we start doing that, we stop thinking about perhaps I deserve the judgment of God as well. And so I want us to kind of remove that thinking as we plow ahead and, and look at what we're doing in the book of Nahum. Because here are these people who were truly, actually godly in the past, and God spared the nation once before, but now these are absolutely terrible people. And, and the chapter that we're looking at is going to demand that we look at ourselves as well. So I've talked a little bit and read those first five verses about what's going to happen to the city. And, and horsemen are going to be charging and flashing swords and glittering spears. And hosts are slain in heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. That's what Nineveh is going to look like. And, and it's all summarized in verse 7. And it says, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? That's going to be the end of Nineveh. But I want to go back to verses 4 and 5, not because they're so graphic, but because it makes a point that I think we must look at this morning. Verses 4 and 5. 
He's calling Nineveh a prostitute, and he says, And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of, full of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. This is what he says is going to happen to Nineveh in particular and the Assyrian army as a whole. He calls them a prostitute. He calls all of their behavior the acts of whoredom and so on and so forth. And God says essentially, I'm going to expose all of this to the nations. Now the word prostitute, and I'm not going to do a word study here, but the word prostitute in the Bible holds a particularly special meaning. A prostitute in the Bible, when God calls a group of people, a nation, or an individual a prostitute, he's speaking about someone who has turned their back on God and chosen to go their own way, to live by their own rules, to do their own things for their own pleasure or for their own profit. In other words, to put something that shouldn't be there above God. That is who is called a prostitute in the Bible. Now, it's all well and good to say, yeah, Nineveh and Assyria deserve to be called a prostitute. The problem is, in the Bible, the people of God are more often than not referred to as prostitutes. In other words, it's the people of God who are unfaithful to him, who are pursuing things other than God and have placed something that does not belong there higher than God. As a matter of fact, several months ago, we looked at the book of Hosea. And the entire book of Hosea was written to God's people and God referred to them as prostitutes. My point in making in this is simply that Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in this particular case are acting, if you will, as a type for a universal problem. The problem that man has put something that does not belong there above the place that God should have for their own glory, for their own pleasure, for their own pockets being filled. That's how he describes Nineveh. That's how he describes the nation of Assyria. But it's also how he has described the very people of God. And what God says to Nineveh is this. I'm going to lift up your skirt so the entire world can see your nakedness and you will know your shame. The shame of your sin, the shame of the judgment that I will bring against you, the shame that rightfully belongs to you for acting as a people who have turned their back on the one true living God. That's what's coming to Nineveh. That's what's coming to Assyria. And quite frankly, 
that's what is coming to anyone who has not put their faith and trust in the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself. And so judgment comes upon Nineveh, but as a picture of really who humanity really is. In verses 11 through 13, there's really a picture of when all of this happened, the people have no place to hide. You know, like when, when your skirt's lifted and your shame is shown, what do you want to do? You want to hide more than anything else. And God says there's not going to be a place to hide. Let me just read this for us. Verse 11, you also will be drunken and you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire will be devoured, will devour your bars. He encouraged them, this is very tongue-in-cheek, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the day, into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire that will devour you. In other words, Nahum says to the people of Nineveh, go build bricks, make your fortifications stronger and higher. Go, go hide under a fig tree that's ripe, but the first person that shakes the branch, everything that's on the tree is going to fall off, and you're going to be seen. There would be no place to hide, because it is God who is revealing your sin, and it is God who is judging it. That's the reality. There is no place to hide, and then then the book and the chapter ends this way in verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? In other words, you've done evil to everybody. And when you fall as a nation, everybody's going to cheer. Maybe that's the comfort. But that's the end of the book. And we like happy endings. Don't we? I mean, we do. And I think here in the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Bible has painted a picture, a very real picture of the fact that God hates sin on a universal level and that he is going to judge sin, and that there is not a place to hide. And Nineveh and the nation of Assyria are an example of that, a historical example, a spiritual example, any example you want to use. They're wiped off the face of the planet, this nation that once repented and believed in the one true God. And a generation and a half later, after the faithful died off, the people went back to their sin. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, where's the comfort? <laughs> where's the comfort, Nam? I mean, it might scare me. It might cause me for about three days to live a better life if I believe this. 
But, but look with me back at chapter 1, verse 15. It's very hard to rectify. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What, what Nahum is saying, and I, when we went over this passage, I told you this was a quote from Isaiah 41.11, which was a messianic passage. But, but in context, I say, how can this type of judgment be good news? You see what I'm saying? How does this bring peace? And I think, man, that's a tough one. It's a challenge. It's hard to know what's going on. When, when Nahum say, says these things by, by quoting Isaiah 41. Well, thankfully, thankfully, and I, and I really want to do this so that we understand how the Bible works. Paul decides to quote Nahum chapter 1 to explain where comfort comes from and why judgment is a message of comfort, all right? So if you will, just turn, this last place we're going to turn, flip back to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to go through those three same verses and then add three more verses, okay? So back to Romans chapter 10. And I, and I want us to kind of still be wrestling with this idea of judgment and comfort at the same time. And see if Paul's not wrestling with these same two things and putting these two things together. Back to verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now we know what we're being saved from. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Wasn't that the point in Nahum? God is going to shame Nineveh, shame Assyria, shame anybody that has sin. Their skirts are going to be raised over their heads and everything was going to be exposed. Not only are we saved from the judgment of God, we are spared the shame that comes from eternal separation from God because he has made a provision for the judgment. But let's continue on. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We could translate Greek, Gentile, the nations. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Back to Nahum chapter 1, those who take refuge in him are secure. Paul, I believe, has the same idea in mind. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And he's quoting Nahum chapter 3. I'm chapter 1. You see, the good news from the beginning of time has been a combination of things. God hates sin and man's rebellion against God. And that sin must be judged. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Judgment must come. And the question is, will there be enough faith to believe that God will make provision for that judgment so that we will know no shame? If not, the judgment rests on us and the shame is ours for all eternity. And Paul picks this up and he says, let me tell you how God made provision. He made provision in his son. And he is the one that took upon himself my judgment for your sin. And he was shamed. And the world saw his nakedness. And he became the prostitute for you. So that you could have relationship with me. I know that I get to talking about Jesus from the Old Testament, but do you see how it gets us there? It's not accidental that Paul is quoting Nahum. It's not accidental that Nahum is quoting from Isaiah that is messianic when he says, This is the good news. This is what is blessed. This is what brings peace between God and mankind. The reality that God has made provision for us so that judgment does not have to be ours. But how will they hear? How will they know unless somebody goes and tells them? That's the reality. Most of us in this room have relationship with God through Christ. Praise him for sure. But we all know those who don't. In verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What do people need? Verses 9, 10, and 11. Profess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. But the ability to do that comes from hearing the word of Christ. And there is no better opportunity than for us to tell people that judgment is real, but guess what the comfort is? Christ has taken upon himself your judgment. That is very real. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your word. And I believe without smoke and mirrors, Nahum points to the Lord Jesus that it points to the reality that judgment is real, but comfort is ours. And we should be giving you praise, and we will throughout all of eternity. But help us to be mouthpieces for the word of Christ so that people can hear from our lips what they need to put their faith and trust in. 
so that they can profess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord of all. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.